Good morning and welcome into FBC Online this Easter Sunday. Hey, throughout the history of the church, when Christians would gather together on Easter Sunday to celebrate the resurrection, they would greet one another with this back and forth where one person would say, He is risen. And then the other person would respond, he is risen indeed. And so even though you are in your living room or kitchen and somewhere we're not in the same room, would you you join me in that? He is risen. All right. (laughs) He is risen indeed. Amen. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, we come to worship you this morning and just recognize that you are alive. We do not pray to someone who is dead or long forgotten. Jesus, you are the living God. You rose from the grave. You conquered death. Lord, it's your resurrection that gives us hope and new life as we are united to you through faith. So thank you, Jesus, for who you are. We worship you as your people this morning. Uh, Would you have your way now as we jump into your word together? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Well, hey, it is Easter Sunday. I just want to welcome you again. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at FBC. And if you have a Bible uh, or a device you can find the Bible app on, join me in the book of John chapter 2. We've been in this uh, sermon series for a few weeks now, walking through the Gospel of John called Come and See, where we simply want to look at Jesus. Come and see. Look at who he is over and over again. Uh, Typically what we'll do on a special Sunday like Easter or like Christmas Eve is we'll take a break from our current series to focus on that uh, special uh, Monday or that special moment, that special Uh, Sunday, but the next passage in the Gospel of John that we were getting ready to study is uh, perfect for Easter Sunday. And so we're going to stay in our series in John and jump in in chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Let me read it for us and we'll jump in. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, I know what you are thinking. You're saying, Pastor, this is Easter Sunday, and what you just read has nothing to do with Easter. I mean, come on, Pastor, this is like Easter Sunday, fastball over the plate, empty tomb, resurrection, Jesus is alive, give us some passage about that, let's go decorate some eggs, stay on message, right? Pastor, I invited my neighbors My friends, my kids, maybe someone I know, they're watching for the first time here on Easter Sunday, and you're giving us angry Jesus in the temple with a whip, turning over tables, driving people away. I mean, if we're not talking about the empty tomb, at least gives us, you know, Jesus loves the little children, God loves you so much, something like that, not bouncer in the temple, Jesus. 
do you trust me? Do you trust me? You don't have to answer that out loud. So we're going to come around, okay? Trust me, we're going to get there to how this connects to Easter. Just stay with me, all right? Let's jump in. Let's start where, where the text starts. You'll see what we're doing. Verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Sometime after the wedding at Cana, the water turned into wine. We looked at last week. Jesus and his disciples go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, Jerusalem was the capital city for the Jews. And Passover was the high point, you could say, of, of celebration and remembrance for the Jews throughout the year, where they remember the decisive moment in history in the book of Exodus where God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. So they're going to the capital city during the height of, of celebration and remembrance for the people. It would be like going to Washington, D.C. on July 4th to celebrate. Okay, but even bigger. The, the city would be buzzing. And we read what happens next, verse 14. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So we say, Happy Easter to you too, Jesus. My goodness. Jesus enters the temple courts, this holy place of worship for the people. And after seeing what he sees, he does what? He sends animals <laughs> scurrying. He breaks furniture and overturns tables. Coins are clanging and flying all over the place because he finds in the temple courts people selling animals for sacrifice and exchanging money. They're conducting business in the temple courts. Now, uh, pilgrims would travel to Jerusalem from miles away to celebrate the Passover each year. They'd travel to Jerusalem, and if you're traveling 10 or 20 or 50 or 70 miles on foot, taking multiple days for your journey, do you really want to pack the pet birds for sacrifice? You know, honey, did you pack the doves? Honey, did you pack the food for the sheep? The what? No, the food for the sheep, did you put it in the... Okay, we got to turn around, we forgot the sheep. See, this service in the temple made it so pilgrims and travelers wouldn't have to bring their own animals from far away to sacrifice. They could purchase the animals for sacrifice once they arrived. Now, that's not a problem in itself. I mean, some would look at this text and argue that the practice itself was uh, exploitive. It was... Uh, prey on the people and they'd make money off it and so on. And that's kind of up for debate. I don't think that really seems to be the issue here. What's the issue here for Jesus? To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Verse 16, stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that his written zeal for your house will consume me. And so Jesus points out the problem. Stop turning my father's house into into a market. More literally, uh, he says, stop turning my father's house into a house of trade or a house of commerce. This is supposed to be the temple, the house of God, a house of worship, a place of prayer, and you're making it a noisy market. 
exchanging money, disrupting the holiness of this place. See, the people had allowed worship in the temple to deteriorate into commerce, missing the heart of what the temple was supposed to be all about. And Jesus condemns that. Jesus rebukes that. See, when it comes to worship, when it comes to our life as a church, Jesus wants us to keep the main thing, the main thing, right? What's this, what's this all about? What are we here for? We're here for Him. We're here for Him, for worship, for prayer, not to, to be distracted, to lose sight of that calling. Our first commitment as a church, right, is to worship. We worship God passionately. We're not to get sidetracked or distracted by our own preferences or trying to make church about us. So Jesus clears the temple courts. It's a cleansing of sorts. Still with me? Okay, we're getting to Easter, trust me. Okay, look what happens next, verse 18. The Jews, you know, seeing this, then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Think about it. All this is happening. Jesus is overturning tables. Animals are running. Coins are clanging on the ground. And those in charge at the temple see this, and they're taking issue with Jesus' public critique. Right? And so here's the tension. This is the tension that the whole text revolves around. This question. Jesus, you are making a big scene here. You are making a big statement about what's going on in the temple. Here's the question. What gives you the authority to do this? In other words, they're saying, Jesus, who do you think you are coming here and telling us how to run things? We can't overestimate the importance of the temple in the life of the Jews. It was the basis for their national and religious pride. It was the place where they met with God. There were leaders in authority in the temple, priests and those who would administer the sacrifices and keep orderly worship. So the temple was a big deal, a big symbol of life for the Jews. And so these temple leaders are asking a very reasonable question. Jesus, who are you to come in here and tell us how to run things? Right? If your neighbor, think about this, if your neighbor wants to rearrange their furniture in their living room, should that bother you? Say, no, it shouldn't bother you. Maybe it does, but it shouldn't bother you. you know, but if your neighbor comes in and starts to rearrange furniture in your living room, you'd say, whoa, 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 who are you? to come in here and tell me what this living room is supposed to look like, right? If you manage a Starbucks and a gal comes in off the street and says, no, 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 this is all wrong. Creamers need to be over here. Tables need to be over here. We've got to clean the display case. We've got decaf. We're selling decaf coffee. What is this? Dump that stuff out. Not on my watch. Caffeinated only. They come in and start making all these changes and you're the manager at the Starbucks. You would say, whoa, who are you to come in here and tell me how things should look? Or we could say, if someone were to, to pull up to church this morning, and while I'm recording this sermon, they come on the screen and say, no, 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 this church, how you're doing things is all wrong. This pastor is a joke. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's not even wearing a tie on Easter Sunday. 
what's going on here? Rearrange the room, put the chairs here. How disrespectful. You guys are doing online church. What is this? You, uh, you call these little communion wafers. You call those communion. Again, if someone were to come in and do all of that, you'd say, whoa, who are you to come in here, right, and tell us, the uh, authorized leadership of the church, how things should run? And so Jesus comes into the temple in John chapter 2, and through his actions, he's declaring, I have authority here. And the Jews' response in verse 18, you see what they say? Prove it. Jesus, I have authority here. Verse 18, what sign can you show us to prove your authority? Oh, oh, baby, we have a challenge. Here we go. Now, before we jump into how Jesus is going to respond, we've got to get real here for a second. We often will look at Jesus, say with me, we'll look at Jesus and ask the same question. Jesus, what gives you the authority to come in here to my world, to my life, and tell me how to live? Jesus shows up on the doorstep of our lives. Who are you, we say, to tell me how to arrange things in here? What gives you the right to do that? I see all your teaching, all your commands in the Bible. Jesus, what gives you the right to tell me how I should handle my relationships? to tell me how I should handle my money, to tell me how I should prioritize my time, to tell me how I should treat my neighbors or forgive those who have hurt me. Who are you to tell me what I can and can't do with my body? Who are you to say, Jesus, what I should believe about life and death and eternity and the meaning of it all. It's a question of authority. Who are you, Jesus? And for us, uh, we receive our authority or we look to one of two places usually for authority. Often, if you come from a more traditional culture, or maybe you tend to be a little older, you would say authority comes from your community, your family. It comes from tradition. It's kind of a traditional way to view it. Your life is largely directed or shaped by the needs of your family, the norms, the values of your community, perhaps your religion. But more often today, a lot of us will not have that kind of traditional approach. We will instead say that authority comes from self. Right? You're not driven by your commitment to a traditional culture or a commitment to, to family or to a hierarchy or a community. You're committed to self-expression, pursuing your own desires. You alone get to determine what is right or wrong for you. And one camp will often think that the other is, is selfish and impulsive, and, and the other camp will look at the old crew and say, well, you guys are crusty and traditional and too rigid. But no matter which camp you fall into, no matter where you're prone to look for authority, Jesus is going to step in and mess with you. Jesus is going to upset your tradition, and he's going to upset your self-glorification. I want you to see this. The leaders come to Jesus 
What sign will you give us to prove your authority? What gives you the right, the authority to come in here? Verse 19, here's his answer. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Here's his answer. Okay, you want a sign? You want me to prove this to you? Here's the sign. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Remember, this is taking place in the temple courts. They're standing in front of this majestic structure. And you see their response. They're like, this guy's crazy. Verse 20, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? They're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? There is no way. And they scoff at him. And that's the end of this interaction. <laughs> Rebuild the temple. It's taken us 46 years. Yeah, you're going to do it in three days goodbye, dismissed, and they leave. That's the end of the interaction. You see that? There are so many arguments you see Jesus get into. People come and they challenge him. They try to test him. They try to make him look silly throughout the Gospels. And over and over again, Jesus wins the argument. He, Jesus jukes them. He makes them look Silly, and so much so that often they will stop questioning him. But here, believe this is either the only or one of the only places where it looks like Jesus loses the argument. It looks like he is shamed publicly. It looks like his response is unsatisfactory, and the people say, Huh, rebuild it in three days, please. They shrug him off, drop the mic, and they walk away. Verse 21, John gives some commentary. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. The temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered this interaction and they believed. So he wasn't talking about the literal temple courts, this building in Jerusalem. He was talking about his body. This statement alone is packed with meaning that Jesus refers to himself as the temple. What did the temple signify? Again, it was the place where you met with God. It was the place where the presence of God was a dwelling Those were sacrifices were offered and sins were atoned for. And so Jesus is saying he is the new temple. He's the place where the presence of God dwells, where man and God can meet. He's the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament temple meant. It's wrapped up in Jesus. And so Jesus comes and he clears the temple. He overturns the table. He rebukes the money changers. And the Jews say, who do you think you are? What gives you the authority to do this? And Jesus says, here's his answer, my death and resurrection. I told you we'd get there. I told you we were going there Easter Sunday. Here's what will prove my authority, he says, over this temple and over everything else. I'm going to die, but I'm not going to stay dead. I'm going to rise again three days later. I will be the risen king of the world with authority over all things. Acts chapter 17, verse 31 says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world 
with justice by the man he has appointed. Saying God one day will judge the world and he's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. So what is the proof that Jesus is the one who will judge? That Jesus is God himself. God proves this by raising Jesus from the dead. The resurrection validates the ministry of Jesus. It proves that he is who he says he is. It's because of the resurrection of Jesus that he is in a category all by himself. I mean, think about it. All the leaders and key figures of world religions throughout history are dead. Confucius is dead. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Mary Baker Eddy, Joseph Smith are dead. Jesus stands alone as the risen one, the one who died but is alive today. And that matters, because think about it. If Jesus stayed dead, why would you have to take any of his claims seriously? Right? If Jesus stayed dead, he, he spoke with authority. He taught with authority. He claimed to be the only way to God. And so if he died a humiliating death, and stay dead, you could say, well, I guess not, Jesus. I guess you're not who you say you are. He'd be no different from any other moral teacher or philosopher throughout history. But he rose again. And though the Jewish leaders didn't see it, Jesus is saying, as the risen king of the world, I have authority here in the temple to declare what right and proper worship looks like, and I have authority everywhere else. And so for us today, because of the resurrection, the risen King Jesus has the authority, hear me, the authority to mess with us. He has the authority to come in to the temple of our hearts and rearrange things and turn some tables over And say, things are out of order here. This is not functioning how I designed it to function. Your heart is supposed to be a place where God is worshipped, where things are in order, and it has deteriorated into something else. Jesus has the authority to mess with you. So I ask you on Easter Sunday 2021, what in your heart is out of order? That the risen Jesus wants to sort out. The risen Jesus wants to cleanse, wants to change, wants to heal, wants to make right. Maybe you are trying to claim authority over your life, a certain area of your heart, where you say, I want to do my own thing, and Jesus says, as the risen King, I have authority over this place in your life. The big three areas that this often will come up for us is when we look at our time, our money, and our relationships. Is Jesus Lord of our time, how we spend our time, the direction of our lives, what we pursue with our time, what we give ourselves to? Is it in line with Jesus or our money? Do we handle our money the way the Lord Jesus has called us to? Are our relationships, 
whether that means physically, sexually, whether that means family relationships, how we love and lead our kids, whether that means there's, there's bitterness and unforgiveness maybe in our hearts that we're holding on to, or gossip that's damaging relationships. In some areas we say, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to handle this how I want to thank you very much. It doesn't matter to me what you say or what your word says. I'm going to do things my way. And Jesus says, actually, as the risen king of the world, I have authority to tell you how to live. Now you might be saying, oh, I, I see how it is, pastor. Okay, I come to church on Easter Sunday looking to be uplifted and you want to play hardball with me. You want to give me angry, clearing the temple, whip in his hand, overturning tables, authority Jesus. I'm not sure I like that. That's rather rigid and harsh. If you're wondering about that this morning, what I want you to see, what I pray you'll see, is that this act of clearing the temple in John chapter 2 looks harsh perhaps, and in our lives maybe feels harsh, but it's not Jesus just being temperamental. It's not Jesus just not sleeping well. He didn't have his espresso this morning, and so he comes in, and he's, he's angry. I want you to see that this act is an act of grace. It's an act of grace. Say with me here, sometimes we misunderstand grace, and we think grace means God letting me do whatever I want. Grace means God letting me go do whatever I want without consequence. Friends, that is not grace. In fact, God just letting you go your own wayward way is probably the scariest place you could be. In fact, Romans 1 describes this descent into sin for humanity. Go and read it on your own time. Romans 1 uh, describes humanity descending into sin and rebellion. And there's this phrase that's repeated several times throughout the chapter. And it's the phrase, God gave them over. They wanted to sin. They wanted to turn from Him. And so God gave them over multiple times. God gave them over. Modern translation, God said, you do you. Gave them over to their own desires. Gave them over to themselves. Essentially saying, okay, have your way. Okay, you do you. And the result was chaos. The result was death. Friends, we know today that, that good parents don't tell their kids, hey, yeah, I don't care, do whatever you want. Good parents intervene. Good parents discipline Good parents teach their kids and say, I love you too much to let this, whatever this is, go unchecked. I love you too much to let you think that this isn't a big deal. I love you too much to let you think that this is okay. And so it may not feel like it at the time, but when God intervenes, when Jesus turns over those tables in the temple, when Jesus points out the disorder in our hearts quite forcefully, it's an act of grace. Because he loves you. It's because he loves you. 
He's giving you this opportunity, this insight, this conviction, this opportunity to change, this this red flashing light on the dashboard of your car saying something has to change, there's a problem that needs to be addressed, or there's danger and devastation ahead. So friends, hear me, this, this, this temple scene and this reality of the authority of Jesus in your life is not just some, some bitter, harsh, rigid Jesus on a power trip. Jesus, in his grace and in his patience and in his kindness, comes to us and he says, let me return this heart of yours to functioning how it was designed. I may need to turn over some tables and make a scene here to get your attention, but let me lead you to life. Let me arrange things here how they're supposed to be and lead you to joy. I see your burden. I see, your, see how exhausting life is for you right now. Let me take that burden off your back. Let me lead you to rest. Friends, Easter and the resurrection of Jesus is about what we've just talked about. But it's not just about the authority of Jesus. Also this morning, I want us to celebrate the hope of the resurrection, the joy that we can have this morning. Because throughout the New Testament, what we see is this promise that those who trust in Christ will be raised to life just like Jesus. Romans 8, 11, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Talking to believers. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Jesus in John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. John 6, 54, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so this morning we recognize not just that Jesus has authority over our lives now, but that Jesus alone has the power to give us new life, to raise us from the dead, to give us eternal life and hope beyond the grave. This is the heart of Easter. Friends, this has been coming up a lot in the Scrabeck household lately as Zoe, our daughter, is almost four years old and, and the topic of death has been coming up. Family members have died, pets in the family have died and we've had to kind of explain or try to explain to her what that means and it's, it's hard for her to grasp and understand and it's hard for us as adults to, to come to terms with as well, Right? I know many of us right now are in, in grief or navigating loss or know that, that feeling intimately. Easter reminds us that death doesn't have the final word. Easter reminds us that for the Christian, there is hope. And that's what we've tried to communicate to Zoe. I don't think it's fully gotten through, but we tried to tell her, hey, death is hard. It's sad. There's loss. There's grief. That's a reality. But, but Jesus gives us this promise. And Zoe, we want you to know that if we come to him, if we trust in him, though we will die one day, one day, little girl, he's going to call your name. And you're going to 
be raised up out of the grave to new and eternal life with him. So friends, we have reason to celebrate. We have reason to hope this morning. But I also want to acknowledge that there's a chance here for some of us who need to respond. It's not an accident that you're here listening to this video this morning. Maybe as I was talking about the authority of Jesus to mess with you and rearrange your life, there was something that he brought to your attention. Again, a relationship, a habit, a practice, a direction that needs to change. And he's given you this uh, moment, this opportunity in his grace to, to turn the other direction. The biblical word is to repent, to change, and go the other way. We're going to pray in just a moment. I want to invite you uh, to pray with me if that uh, is your, your heart and what you need to respond to. And then we'll take communion. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we uh, together recognize your authority as the risen King. And Lord, although it is hard in different ways, we give you our hearts. We submit to you. We want to do things your way. We want to walk in your ways, Lord. You are the King. This is your kingdom. Help us walk in light of that. So I pray for my friends here this morning. If there's anyone listening Lord, I pray that you would, you would convict them now of what needs to change. And you'd help them say to you, Lord Jesus, I give you my life. Lord Jesus, I give you the fullness of my heart. I've been holding on to this for too long. And I want to surrender. Lord, take it and have your way. Friends, we have a chance to now celebrate communion together as a church family. Communion is, is when believers come and they take the bread and the cup representing Jesus' body and blood and we remember his sacrifice for us. But this Easter Sunday as we celebrate communion, there's an added layer that we need to remember. Paul in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, as often as you take communion together, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You hear that? So in communion, we're proclaiming the Lord's death, declaring what Jesus has done for us, his death, but we're not just looking back. No, as a church, we're making a statement, a proclamation that Jesus is alive and we are waiting for him to come again. And so until he returns, we will take these elements to remember him together. But he is alive and he's coming again. So on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Amen. Amen and happy Easter.